0: With every holiday, with every Jewish festival, we always strive to try to understand what is the core idea, what's the crux of the festival. And right now we're in the middle of the festival of Sukkot, and I think it would be important and, and meaningful and valuable for us to try to understand what is the essence of this holiday and how, and how do we maximize it uh, as best we can. Now, I think there's also a question uh, to be asked here. Uh, the holiday of Sukkot begins exactly five days after Yom Kippur. So we have Rosh Hashanah, ten, ten days later Yom Kippur, and five days later Sukkis. And we know that Jewish holidays are not just there to memorialize the past. That We don't believe in—there's there's no dead holidays. Uh, for like, for example, today on, on Monday— is Columbus Day, where we, in America or in various countries, they're recognizing something that happened in 1492. This is 600 years ago when Columbus arrived in America. It has no practical meaning for 2017. Jewish holidays are different. There's always an aim. There's always an objective. There's something that we need to try to access Today, as we celebrate the holiday, as we celebrate the festival, and all the elements of the festival are are tailored to try to get us to understand to, to access that given idea. So obviously, there's something that we're lacking that we need to get on Sukkot right after Yom Kippur, and the problem I think there's a question that. On Yom Kippur, it's a day of atonement. It's a day of forgiveness. It's a day where God cleanses us. It's a day of purification. It's a day when we begin Yom Kippur sullied, but we emerge pure. Well, if we're pure, if we're untainted, what's lacking? What is Sukkis coming to fix that wasn't already fixed by Yom Kippur? And it's interesting, if you look at the halacha, the Jewish law, it stresses this link between Yom Kippur and Sukkot. For example, the halacha tells us that you should not, ideally, if, if possible, you should not build your Sukkah until after Yom Kippur. You should start building your Sukkah immediately when, when Yom Kippur ends. So obviously, where it seems to be implied that once you finish Yom Kippur, then you could start Sukkot. But I would think that once you finish Yom Kippur, well, if someone is cleansed of all sin, if someone is pure purified, if someone is in the most ideal state that a human could be when there's nothing so to speak separating from him uh, between him or her and God, well what what's lacking? So we're trying to understand what Sukkos is and specifically how it relates to Yom Kippur or how it's, so to speak, filling something the Yom Kippur was not able to achieve. So I, I want to suggest, well, actually, I heard this from my grandfather, but he suggested an approach to answer this question, but also to help us understand the nature of Sukkis, the festival, and many of the aspects that are uh, a part and parcel of this holiday. So we know that the goal of man through Torah is to become close to God, to become close to our Creator. Of course, this implies that we're not close. And Jewish sources talk about the fact that there are barriers and there's distance separating us and God. And every sin that we do pushes us further away and creates more barriers between us and our Creator. But my grandfather said an amazing insight that there's really two different types of barriers between man and God. There's an internal barrier, which means where someone corrupts themselves from within and makes themselves distant from God or different from God. We know one of the goals of Torah is to make us similar to God. We should walk in God's ways. When we go off that path, we make ourselves dissimilar and thus distant from God. That's, so to speak, an internal barrier. And what's that? That's sin. That's what we call Yetzir Hara, evil inclination. And Yom Kippur is a day where the Talmud tells us that there is no Yetzir Hara. It's the day where that internal barrier is removed. And sin, which is... The, the schmutz, the, the dirt, the defilement, the internal defilement that we have as a result of our actions, well, that is cleansed. But that's only one type of barrier between us and our Creator. There's another barrier that's not fixed on Yom Kippur. That's an external one. It's not inherent inside a person, but it is His surrounding and surroundings. Now, it's interesting, in Hebrew, this is a common theme in in Jewish learning, that the Hebrew word of a given entity underscores its meaning. Now, the Hebrew word for world is olam, which etymologically is linked to the word heelem, which means obscuring or obfuscation. And the external barrier that we're talking about is not the person, but the venue, where the person is. The world, which is, so to speak, an external from us, from a person, that is another barrier between us and God. And of course, there's several elements to it. So for example, we we know that uh, the Mishnah tells us that this world, the, the, the existence that we have today as body and soul merge together, this is really, says the Mishnah, a corridor bringing us to a different world, what we call the next world, or olam haba, the upcoming world. Thus, the viewpoint of the outlook of the Torah, the Weltanschauung of the Torah, is that everything that we live in this existence, in this iteration of man, body and soul fused together, living on planet Earth, seeing the world the way we see it, everything is just there to help us get to a certain goal, which we call Omaba. And thus, this world here, this existence here, what we'd call your career or, uh, the the things you're trying to strive for, your aspirations, all that is a stepping stone to get you to some other place, to some other destination. Now, we don't necessarily feel like that. We don't necessarily behave like that. We're likely to ascribe a degree of permanence, a degree of absolute value to this world. And that, in essence, this world that we're living in is a barrier between us and God, because in this world, well, God's not evident. God's only evident in the spiritual world, in Olam Abba, in the next world, and thus we, when we're living in this environment, an environment that obscures God, well, that in a, in a, in itself, even though it's not it's not a sin, we can't be blamed. I can't be blamed for living here. I was I, I didn't choose to come here. I was placed here, but. Nevertheless, even though I'm not blamed for it, but there is another barrier, the existence of this world that separates me from God. But in addition, we look at our nation, the Jewish people, and our culture and Torah and our ideals, and we contrast that with the world at large, with the Gentiles and with their culture and with their beliefs, and with their system of living. And when we evaluate these two, naturally we tend to assume that, well, Jewish people, it's 0.02% of the world's population, we're just a tiny sliver of humanity, and we're different, so to speak, from them. And they're more fixed, they're more permanent and we're maybe a little bit more flimsy. And that again, underscores this barrier it's an attitude where the so to speak, the Torah outlook, the fact that we look at this world as being upside down because when this world is presented as being permanent, as being, the end unto its own, we know it's only a stepping stone. And thus, our ideology is totally in conflict with the vast world that we live in, and all the people, the majority of people. And in our heads, we say, well, our nation, you know, we, we're the outlier. And we're the ones who are always on the cusp of being destroyed. That's our history. But the nations of the world, well, they have more security and they'll be around maybe for longer and that in 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 itself is that attitude is also an element of what we call this world this external barrier between us and god and a third element is the mistake that we assume that nature as you know the, the laws of nature the laws of physics science is an entity independent of god it's interesting that the numerical value the gematria of the word teva teva is the hebrew word for nature the gematria is the same gematria as the word for god and we you know the the, the 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 idea that we're trying to hint with that comparison is that what we see as nature really is god's most common will the most common will of God is this set system of laws that he put to this world. But they're not two distinct entities. Physics doesn't exist outside of God. Science doesn't exist outside of God. Rather, this is God's will most often. Every once in a while, it might be exceedingly rare, but every once in a while, God has a different will. You know, For example, uh, water, unless it's disrupted by an External force is going to fall to the lowest, you know, gravity. It will fall to the lowest, it will pool by the lowest uh, topographical uh, part of, it will always flow down, gravity. Well, the Jewish people are surrounded by the Egyptians, and they're encircled from all sides, and they jump into the water, and the water splits. And the water, which was previously flowing downstream, or was at least level is suddenly going up. That's, of course, against the laws of nature, but we don't see it as a conflict because both of them, both nature and when nature changes are the just the will of God. Nature is what we call the most common will of God. A miracle is a less common will of God, but they're really the same. There's no difference between the two, which as an aside, there are many lessons, teachings in the Talmud which talk about how difficult it was for God to split the sea. And how difficult it is for God. For example, the Talmud tells us it's, it's as difficult for God to unite husband and wife as it is for him to split the sea, which seems to imply that to unite a husband and wife is very difficult. Uh, another example, the Talmud also says it's as difficult for someone to have food to eat as it is to split the sea. Now, for us, we go to the grocery store, we get food, no problem. But to split the sea, my goodness, I couldn't do that. That's a miracle. But the truth is, what the Talmud is telling us is, both of them are exactly the same thing. Both of them are the will of God. And God wills nature. And God says, every once in a while, will something else. Splitting the sea is something else. The fact that produce, agriculture works... That is nature. But both of them are just reflections of will of God. And we are likely to divorce nature as an independent entity from the Almighty. And these attitudes, these perspectives are part of what we call the external barrier. It's not sins themselves, but it's the conditions that can potentially evoke sin. These external barriers, it creates the possibility, the potential for the internal barrier to develop. Sukkis is the festival that shatters the external barrier. Thus, Yom Kippur is there to perfect and cleanse us internally and thus remove the internal barrier to us in God. And Sukkis is there to disrupt the external barrier, and thus these two together can create uh, the perfect relationship between man and God. So let's look a little bit at the mitzvahs of Sukkos and see how they are directed at disrupting, upending the external barrier between us and and our Creator. So of course, first up, you have the eponymous mitzvah of Sukkos sitting in the Sukkot. The verse tells us in Leviticus, you should should live or dwell in a sukkah for seven days. The Torah is telling us to leave our permanent dwelling, move into a temporary dwelling, to go get a, a rickety hut, a gazebo, and live in it for a week, and then move back to our homes. So what's the... Idea behind this? Why are we told to abandon our climate-controlled homes and move into a temporary home? I remember growing up in New York; it was always very cold in the sukkah. It's October; it's it's very late in the year. And here in Houston today, it was ninety-five degrees in Houston. It's very hot. But the underlying or the commonality between life here and there, or sukkahs here and there, is that you're exposed to the elements. It's not an ideal, comfortable way of living. Why are we told to abandon our permanent residence and move into a temporary one? And I think the idea really strikes at the core or one of the core tenets of our belief. And that is, like we said earlier, this world is a passageway A corridor, a means to get to the next world. Now, importantly, the Torah does not eschew the existence of this world. We don't say this world necessarily is bad. The Torah, in fact, does not promote asceticism or uh, living a monastic life. And it's an important distinction. We do embrace this world provided that it's a means to assist us in our true aim, which is service of God, which is living for the next world. Thus, we do believe in embracing this world, but not as an end unto its own. And therefore, what do we do? We go and we adopt willfully a substandard third world kind of living. You see pictures of tribes in Africa, and they're living in huts kind of similar to what to what we're living in now for these seven days. The idea is, yes, this is clear. No one would say this is not a temporary residence. And we are embracing a temporary residence. Why? To remind us that life in this world and indeed our permanent residence is also Temporary. It's also just a means. We're traveling to a destination. No one who sees a sukkah thinks it's anything but temporary. But when we see our house, that's a permanent dwelling, that's a home, it's built to last. But the truth is, the sukkah is home for seven days. Perhaps the house is home for seven years or even 70 years. But really, if you compare seven days and 70 years, they're still in the same ballpark. They're just, both of them are, are temporary. Neither of them are truly permanent. It's only varying degrees of temporality. Well, what about Olam Abba? What about an eternal life? In comparison to an, an eternal life, they're both identical. They're both temporary. And it doesn't matter, this one's seven days, this one's seven years, so What? They're both temporary and therefore don't hold a candle to Olam Abba. And thus, by sitting in the Soko, we're trying to reinforce the notion that we are liable to forget because of these external barriers, because of this Olam that we're living in it. We forget by dint of our existence in this world that this world itself is just temporary. And thus, by sitting in the sukkah, we're able to capture that, to remember, to experience the fact that it is temporary. And indeed, the Talmud tells us that we specifically sit in the sukkah at a time where it's not necessarily so comfortable. You know, maybe in the spring, it would be really nice to sit in a gazebo. It gets the fall, it gets kind of cold. Maybe then people kind of go inside. Specifically, then we go into the Sukkah to remind us that there is a message here, and the message is, is that this world is temporary, and we are striving for the permanent one. There's a famous story with Hafez Chaim, the great leader of the Jewish world in the early part of the 20th century. He met one of the Rothschilds or one of the um, one of the wealthy Jewish families. And uh, he was the greatest rabbi around, so he was visiting Poland, and he went, this this great wealthy businessman went to visit this great rabbi, this sagely uh, venerated uh, elder of the Jewish nation, and he goes and he sees his home, and it's it's sparsely furnished, and the couches have patches all over them. And he asks him, he's like, I can't believe you live in such squalor, You know, ha- how is it? How are you living here? We, and, and the Chavetz Chaim tells him says, well, you know, this is you know this is not my real my real furniture. So he tells him, well, well, well where is your furniture? So he so he, so he returns the question to him. Well, where's your furniture? What well, my furniture? My furniture is in Vienna. My furniture is I'm, I'm just traveling. So the Chavetz Chaim tells him, oh, I'm also just traveling. My permanent home is in Olam Abba, and here I'm I'm just traveling. And this is really the the, the notion of, of the sukkah. And it's to dismantle the last barrier that separated us from our creator. It's interesting, the Radvaz was one of the great rabbis of the uh, 15th century. And He wrote a book called Ta'ameh Mitzvos. It's officially called Mitsudas David. What this does is it gives us the meaning behind all the mitzvos. And in the mitzvah of sukkah, Mitzvah 117, he talks about how the word sukkah is even spelled. It's a samach, and a vav, and a chav, and a he. And if you look at this word, you'll notice something really interesting. If you take the samach and the he, the first and the last letters, and you add up the total the the numerical total you'll come out with the same amount of letters same same numerical value as the name of god the way we pronounce it if you add the two internal letters then you it's it's 26 that equals the name of god that we don't pronounce thus you have both names of god the one that's revealed and the one that's hidden both of them are coming to fruition in the sukkah. The idea being is that we are trying to create a relationship where we are exposing and unearthing God, removing all the fences, both the hidden and the revealed aspects of God or relationship that we have with God. Both of them should be present in the sukkah and in the meaning behind, behind it. It's also interesting. Uh, the verse tells us actually a reason why we sit in the sukkah. And this is in Leviticus 23, 43. In order that your generation shall know that when the Jewish people left Egypt, the Almighty placed us in a sukkah, in a temporary dwelling. Says Rashi, quoting from the Talmud, what does it mean? A sukkah. Which sukkah did God put us in when we left Egypt. It's referring to the Anane HaKavod, the clouds of glory. What are these clouds of glory? So you read after the Exodus, there's this cloud, this magical cloud that surrounded the Jewish people at all times. But I, I really think that this kind of nails the point. When the Jewish people were surrounded by clouds of glory, what that means is they were enveloped externally by God. There were no there were no barriers of course this doesn't if there's a cloud surrounding you it's not referring to who you are internally but it is demonstrating that God is surrounding and in, in enveloping the nation there's no there's no barriers between us and him from without outside of us on sukkah, sitting in the sukkah we're trying to again, recapture those clouds of glory, that relationship that we had when we left Egypt, when we were at our peak. And I think there's also another another deep insight here. I want to suggest that this attitude is actually the key to gaining entry to Oloba, to the next world. It's not just... If you believe it, it's 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 a belief on its own. It's not an independent belief. Rather, this belief and behaving, guided, being guided, or having our behavior be guided by this belief is in itself what engenders the right of passage to Olam How so? So the Talmud, in the book of Avodah Zarah, in the beginning, very strange episode a futuristic episode. It's talking about what's going to be after Olam Abba is unearthed, or in the future. After Mashiach, after everything, there's going to be, uh, there's going to be an appeal. The non-Jews are going to say, well, we deserve some Olam Abba too. Why? Because the Jewish people, they had mitzvos. The mitzvos they were the keys to unlocking Olam Abba We didn't have mitzvahs. Had we had mitzvahs, we too would have achieved that same greatness. And the Almighty is going to tell them, oh, well, okay, I'll give you one shot. I have one mitzvah. It's an easy mitzvah. It's not an expensive mitzvah. It's called sukkah. You do it and you get what it is that you're hoping to get. Okay, so the people, the non-Jews, they go and they build a sukkah on top of the roof and the money makes it really hot. And it's so hot, it's so unbearable, they get out of the sukkah and they kick it in disgust, and they move back into their air-conditioned homes. And the money says, Okay, you see, they weren't even weren't even able to uphold one mitzvah, one easy mitzvah. So of course, there's many questions about this. When is actually does this happen? And how does this happen? And all those questions aside. But I want to look specifically as to why is the litmus test of all the mitzvahs to select, if we're going to give one mitzvah to the non-Jews, give them a chance, give them an opportunity to gain olam haba? why sukkah? Why is this mitzvah the determining factor of someone's eligibility to olam haba? But I think also in addition— the Talmud is telling us some event that's going to happen in the future. Hasn't that happened quite yet. Now, the Talmud does not tell us future events unless it has a practical lesson for us today. You know, if it was just something that's going to happen in the future, a lot of things are going to happen in the future. Why does the Talmud find it necessary to tell us this particular event that's going to happen in the future? Well, let's wait and see. We'll see what happens. Obviously, there's some lesson inherent in this future episode is relevant to us today. So, perhaps we can say that what the Talmud is, is hinting with this story is that indeed, the idea of sukkah, the idea of being able to bear living in a substandard situation is actually the key to unlocking the permanent situation in the future. Everyone needs to choose which world they're going to live their permanent life in. If someone says, I want to choose to live this world as my permanent life, by doing that, they're necessarily rejecting the next world. They don't want to have the next world as the permanent life. Thus, we specifically, when we choose to make this world our temporary life, that enables us to have next world as the as the permanent one. Which mitzvah symbolizes the fact that this world is tempered more than any other? That's the sukkah. I want, and I, in the past, I've given an analogy to help explain this. In when people travel for business, um, they like to get a uh, business class seat, or now they have these fancy, uh, these new jets that they have these lie flat first class seats. You get your own bathroom. You get these towelettes that you get to wipe off your sweat. It's 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 a pretty good way to travel, but I think no matter how, no matter how exclusive, no matter how uh, luxurious a first class seat is, it's never quite as comfortable as my couch. And my couch is certainly not as comfortable as my bed. How come, if so, how come I could get people to pay $6,000 or $10,000 to be locked up in a cylinder with total strangers and to have an experience that's less comfortable than one where they would just sleep on my couch? You know, today there's this, there's this thing called Airbnb, a big company where people could rent out their house or even a room in their house to strangers to live in it. I have a brilliant idea. I'm going to put my couch on Airbnb and someone will pay me six or even $10,000 to stay on it for a night. Why? Because obviously you see that people pay that kind of money for that kind of experience or even an experience that's worse. I'm I'm willing to offer the same towelettes. I'll give you the cold drinks. I'll give you all the alcohol you could drink. Why would no one pay me $6,000 to sleep my couch for a night. The answer is when people are traveling their standards of living drop. And therefore us plebes who sit in the back of the plane, we're okay to sit in a seat to be upright for 12 hours next to total strangers who are taking up your spot on the handrest. Why? Because well, we need to get to the destination. I have to get to New York. I have to get to paris i have to get somewhere and therefore i'm willing to endure the pain and the suffering and the reduction of my standard of living in order to get there and if i get a couch well, that's fantastic i'm willing to pay a lot for that but i think if your standards are not dropping obviously that is evident that you're not traveling when we sit in the sukkah we're showing that we're traveling. If you're traveling, it's okay to, it's okay to have the rickety, fa- the rickety walls and it to be a little sweaty. It's no big deal. This is not what it's going to be like forever. You're trying to get somewhere. Once you get there, then you'll be comfortable. Thus, the attitude itself is what garners us the result. We choose which world to make our permanent one. So, what do we read on in shul on on circus? So, of course, on the festival of circus, we read the book of Koheles, the book of Ecclesiastes, which in, a, in, a, in essence is an, an entire book dedicated around the futility and temporality of this world. There's nothing new everything's futile, everything that he tried to do, it was all, in the end, meaningless. Of course, what it's telling us is that this world, it's temporary and therefore it has no lasting value. But the end, well, the next world, that does indeed have permanent value. In addition, we also read uh, from the books of Ezekiel and the books of Zechariah, we read about the humbling of the 770 nations. We talk about the War of Gog and Magog the, and the final showdown between the Jewish people and the Gentiles and the nations. And of course, what happens? We win. What this does to us is to remind us that what we perhaps assume is permanent, what we erroneously ascribe a degree of stability and security to the nations, the 70 nations, which is all nations besides for us, they really are on a collision course with destiny, with their destiny. They, they, they too are in this fast lane of obsolescence and they will be humbled before God. And thus that other element of this external barrier is also we're reminding ourselves that don't treat the world at large as being so permanent and everything being so fixed. No, they too are suitable to be disrupted very soon. In addition, we take these four species and there's a famous teaching from the Tour, one of the great medieval commentators, of why we have the Lulav and the Esrog. And he tells us that on on Yom Kippur, Yom Kippur's Day of Judgment, And if it's like a war. And there's two sides. We don't know who's going to win. And just like if you had someone going out to battle, and the battle happens, and after the battle you want to know who wins. How do you find out who's the winner? Well, whoever is brandishing the sword, holding it up high, that's the victor. So too, says the tour on Yom Kippur and Rosh Hashanah, on the days of judgment, we went to war. Who did we go to war with? With the Gentiles, with the other nations, with the 70 nations. And after Yom Kippur, who wins? Well, we come with our lulav and we shake our lulav. We're the ones brandishing the sword. That's what the Torah says. The problem is that on Yom Kippur, we're not really battling other people. It's a day of judgment, each individual alone. So what's this idea that there is some sort of of conflict between the Jewish nation and the 70 nations on Yom Kippur. I think the, the point here is that we have Yom Kippur. We have a day designated to cleansing us from all sin, to purifying us. And therefore, every year, we have a refresh button. We have all the conditions that perhaps should warrant our destruction, our going extinct, all those are removed. And therefore, thanks to Yom Kippur, our survival is assured. What about the Gentiles? What about the 70 nations? They don't have Yom Kippur. And therefore, their survival is very much up in the air. And their are great empires and great nations that were so mighty and were so powerful No one could fathom that they'll be gone, and we—what were we? A small ragtag group of Jews, hated by everyone, being sent, uh, scattering throughout the lands, being expelled, being subject to the merciless decrees of our overlords. And you know what? We're we're still here. So indeed, Yom Kippur is—it's not a—it's not a day where we went to battle against the Gentiles. But in a certain sense, if you were to gauge the future prospects of the Jewish nation versus the Gentiles, Yom Kippur is when those two reach a a crossroads. We have Yom Kippur. We'll, We'll survive. They didn't. And therefore, it's likely that they will be destroyed. But... Throughout our history, we don't necessarily think about that. We tend to assume that we're the ones on the brink. Historically, that's what you would prognosticate. On on circus, we take our lulav, and we remember that it's only us who will remain standing. Everyone else will either be gone or will come along with us and be humbled before Hashem. That other element of this external. Baruch and God, again, this supremacy, the fact that we're wowed by the Gentiles, another uh that that too, through the mitzvah of shaking the Lulu of an Esrod, we try to combat that particular aspect. And there's another wrinkle. Uh, the Midrash tells us that the four species, the four elements of the Lulav and Esrod and the Nasma each one of them. Uh, each one of them hints to one of the letters, the four letters of the name of God, of the ineffable name of God, the tetragram. In addition, another measure tells us uh, that each of the four species, there is a corresponding verse that uses the words of these four species in reference to God. Thus, the Midrash tells us, pre hadar, which is, means the esrog, what's that referring to? God. The lulav, what's that referring to? God. Why? Because there's a verse in Tehillim, in Psalms, that uses the same word as hadar, to reference God, and kapos Tamarim, tamar, to reference God, and the other two as well. Thus, we are holding a fruit and some branches and some leaves. And we're engaging with various items that ostensibly are products of nature. They grow from the ground. And what does the image just tell us? What are we supposed to think about that? Each one of them is, re- is reminding us of one letter of God, and thus together we're trying to remember God. In addition, each one individually is really referring to God too. Thus, this whole mistake to ascribe an independent existence to nature, that too is being addressed on this festival. How does the festival end? So there's a day called Shemini Atzeres, the eighth day of Sukkot. Sukkot is seven days, and the eighth day is Shemini Atzeres, the eighth Atzeres. What is noteworthy or intriguing is that there's actually another festival, Shavuos, that's called Atzeres. So you have two festivals that are called Atzeres. And both of them, the Talmud tells us that really Shmini Atzeres, the Atzeres at the end of Sukkot, should be 50 days after Sukkot, just like Shavuos the original atzeras is 50 days after Pesach. But why was Shmini atzeros, why was it uh, uh, appendaged to Sukkot? Well, because it would be inconvenient. Because if the people, we know on every festival, you have to go to the temple. And so Pesach, well, that's in the spring. Shavuos is 50 days later. It's towards the beginning of the summer. Well, it's not so inconvenient to go visit the temple in the summer. However, if you were to make Shmini Atzeras Fifty days after Sukkot, that would be smack in the middle of the winter, and therefore it wouldn't be convenient for us to come to Jerusalem. And therefore, this other holiday was just added on, tacked on to the end of Sukkot. What's also surprising is that both atzeres, the Shemini Atzeres after Sukkot, and the atzeres of Shavuos don't have a specific mitzvah to do. There's no there's no shofar to blow. There's no lulav. What's this idea of this mitzvah, of this festival that's just, it's just a festival for almost a festival's sake. There's nothing that we could do, so to speak, to accomplish it, to, to, to actualize it. And I think this really shows us what the culmination is. We said, we have all different, all manners of barriers between us and God. We have internal ones, we have external ones, and we're trying to remove them. So in Yom Kippur we remove the internal ones. Hopefully on Sukkot we remove the external ones. Well, what do you have left? All you have is man and man's creator. And therefore, the day, but both Shemini Atzeris and Shavuos, there's no, you don't need to have, sort of speak, a mitzvah to engender that closeness, to bring about a closeness between man and God. It's the day itself. The there's this union already. There's no there's no separations between us and our Creator. And you know, I think this idea, this insight, of, of it really, I think, brings the festival, the the holiday Sukkot, into clear focus. It's it's an entire roadmap of what it is we need to do to create that perfect relationship with our Creator. That's indeed the goal of our life. It's achieved through mitzvos, but there's also seven days for us to really dwell, to really ruminate on these ideas, and hopefully we accomplished the first half on Yom Kippur, uh, where now we have a path, we have a roadmap, we have a, a guide, we have a manual to hopefully tearing down the other wall that separates us from our Creator, and hopefully thereby we could clear the path and access and be worthy of entering Olam Abba. I hope everyone has a wonderful holiday, a wonderful festival, and look forward to speaking to you soon. Chatzamech.